KMTT, Kimitzion Tetze Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Yud Zayn Sivan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Shlach Lecha. I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. When we when we think about and look at and talk about Parshat Shlach, the the good guy side is so clear. We. We don't understand what what were B'nai Israel thinking. Here, God has promised the promised land. He's taken us out of Egypt. And he's done all these miracles. Split the sea. Ten plagues. Matan Torah. What, what is there God can't do? Why is there any room for fear? Kalev and Yahushua are obviously correct. Moshe and Aaron... Our leaders. What, where was the room to get confused? What happened here? And this, of course, stems from a, a position also that easily demonizes the Meraglim. The Meraglim are bad guys, and their end is such. They are killed in a Magaifa, as described in this week's Parsha. They are killed by a plague. And so ten bad guys came along and they managed to convince the people what happened here. And there's there's two points, one in the Parsha, one in Rashi, that are important to put in the focus. And in fact, what will happen when we put these things in the focus is that the opposite will happen. It will be very hard to understand the people who believed in God throughout this. We are told at the beginning of the parsha, The twelve Meraglim Tarim are Rashi Vene Israel Hema. They are the heads of the Jewish people. They are the Gedolim. They are they are pretty high up there. These are the people who come back with their report. Later on in the Parsha, after the report, the negative report of these ten individuals, the Torah says, Vatisa kol ha'ida vaitinuat kolam vaifku ha'am balayla hahu. And Rashi says, Kol Haida Sanhedraot. The whole organization, the whole system, Sanhedraot, that means the various judging systems, these people, the the leadership, they went along with it. What do we have? What's the reason not to go along with it? Well, we've got Moshe and Aaron, and we know that they're a little bit close to the plate. And Kalev ben Yifuneh and Yoshua Binun, two people. Yoshua Binun has got ties with the leadership with Moshe Rabbeinu. We're going to believe these people versus these ten people and the Sanhedraot. 
Who are we the people to believe? When the leadership is so clear, the vast majority of the leadership has such clear opinions, Sanhedraot, the lower level leadership as well, they're all behind it. What room is there for the individual person to think differently? So there's a there's a there's a, there's a noisy minority that's saying differently. They're a minority, a small minority. What do they know? How do we know? How do we know to decipher, to think, to judge when our leadership tells us something? How do we know if we're supposed to believe to the majority or the minority? The Torah gives us tools to deal with this. We go according to a majority. In Halacha, we have a Sanhedrin. There's a majority. We go according to the majority. Why should we act any differently? So here we really have to and truly have to differentiate between when the Torah tells us to listen to the majority. We have very specific contexts. We have a Sanhedrin. We have a vote within the Sanhedrin. We go with the majority vote when deciding a halachic matter. Are we in a situation of a Sanhedrin today? Was the situation of Am Yisrael a situation of a Sanhedrin where they were obligated to accept the view of the majority? So let's assume the answer to that is no. Which is a safe answer. But then, isn't it logical to go according to the majority? What? Everybody's wrong? Can't be that everybody's wrong. Or can't it? And here... We turn around and go back to what we said at the outset. How clear is it that voice of Kalev's? If God wants it for us, He'll bring us to the land and give it to us. God took us out of Egypt. We were slaves there. We had no military might. He picked us up and took us out out of this empire, ten plagues, create Amsuf, he gave us the Torah, he's telling us he's going to take us into Eretz Yisrael, we have no reason until this point to not believe in anything that Moshe has told us, what's wrong? It's a clear voice. It's a big responsibility, what we're putting on the table today. It's a responsibility that says to us, you're not free of making decisions on your own. 
You may have leaders and rabbis, but you are not free from making a call for yourself and figuring out what the right thing is to do. I don't know that Am Yisrael was freed of their responsibility in the sin of the Meraglim because they said, look, we just listened to the leaders. We listened to the leaders. What did you want us to do? They were expected to make a judgment and say, who's making sense here and who's not? They failed to. Now we can talk about the motivations of those who were making a mistake, those ten spies. We can ask ourselves what motivated their mistake. And there are different things, usually in later literature, about them seeing themselves as leaders only within the format of the desert, but not being leaders in Eretz Yisrael. In other words, they had an axe to grind, a personal political axe to grind. Perhaps, perhaps they were comfortable, as we tend to be, in the situation that we're always in. It is often the case that no matter how bad one situation is, the familiarity of that situation and the control that the familiarity allows us to exercise on that situation makes us see any situation, even a better situation, negatively. And then we can start drawing pictures about what's wrong. So if I'm a slave in Egypt, I'm a slave in Egypt. I know what I have to do. And if now I'm not a slave in Egypt, and I'm in the Midbar, I might be complaining that I'd like to be a slave in Egypt again. That was a little bit easier. A little bit fewer fewer decisions to make there. Fewer responsibilities. But if I'm already not a slave in Egypt, well, the Midbar is pretty good. We're protected, we're fed. Let's leave it like this. Let's not shake the boat. Let's not rock the boat. Everything is fine the way it is. And though what we're heading to might be better, it's a change. And it's hard to deal with change. And perhaps that on the simplest level was the motivation, whether of the ten leaders, the ten miraglim, the people who were so ready to hear what they had to say, and say, no, no, we can't go to Eretz Yisrael, this is a disaster. whether this or whether that, whether there was a political axe to grind, whether it was an honest psychological fear to move on to the next stage of responsibility. And leaving Mitzrayim and going into the desert was accepting responsibility. And leaving the desert and going into Eretz Yisrael was accepting much more responsibility. And the people were afraid of this responsibility, perhaps. And they were ready to buy in to this story. And they were responsible for buying into the story. 
because the Meraglim weren't the only ones who were punished. The entire generation died out. Sometimes you can't change people's ideas. You can only get rid of them, tragically. Because sometimes people just don't want to listen. And if they don't want to listen, we just have to move on to the next people. And that's what happened here. The entire generation died out. This generation that was not ready to take responsibility for themselves couldn't go into Eretz Yisrael. And once again... This brings the responsibility back on our shoulders. Us, the people. We have a responsibility. When I was a young man in high school here in Israel, I remember a conversation in which a boy in in this B'nai Akiva high school who has had Haredi leaning said, at the end of the day, what does it matter? You just can't be a Chiloni, a secular Jew. See, if you're a Haredi, so you say, I'm, I'm with Rav Shach, I did what Rav Shach said. And if you're a, a, a religious Zionist Jew, I, I did what Rav Cook said. But if you're a Chiloni, what are you going to say? I did what I wanted. And in fact, none of this is true. We're responsible for our own actions. We're responsible to judge our leaders, our rabbis, and ask ourselves, is what they're telling us the truth? Is it convenient for me to hear what they're saying? Am I thrusting all the responsibility onto them and relieving myself of, respon- myself of responsibility? Because that's what B'nai Israel in the Midbar did. They said, we're with the ten, we're with the majority, we're with the Sanhedraot. If they screwed up, it's not our problem. We just went along with them. No. You are responsible for going along with them. You had to listen to that clear voice of reason that makes perfect sense when you eliminate all your fears and hesitations and laziness that says, if God wants to take us into the country, and this is the country that he promised us, he'll give us the country. He can do it. He's done much greater things already. You could have heard that voice in your head. You should have heard that voice in your head. And you didn't. And you went along with the majority. It was convenient. You identified. It was easier. Why should you have to think for yourself? The people who didn't think for themselves, B'nai Israel, they got taken down in a sin with the ten leaders, and the Sanhedraot. They didn't get to hold up a defense and say, I just went along with him. That's not a defense. And with that, we'll move on to Rav Tavori. This week, next Friday, will be the yard site of one of the greatest leaders of modern political Tzionut Datit, religious Zionism, 
Rav Shmuel Malifer. As I mentioned last week in connection with Shachal, Shmuel Chaim Landau, I grew up in an environment where the pictures of the leaders of religious Zionism were known to us, were hanging on the wall. I remember the image of Rav Shmuel Malifer, who looked like an old-fashioned Hamid Chacham, the classic style that you would associate with every famous Rosh Hashiva, with every famous Rav. And unfortunately, all I knew about him really was that he was known as a Zionist leader. In order to prepare to discuss a little bit about his life, I actually had to look up details of his life, and I found an article by Aleph Mem Genachowski, who wrote a biography, at least a, small, a shortish type of biography, it was printed in a book that Rabbi Young of New York published. According to the account by Genachowski, Rabbi Shmuel Oliver was born in, 19, in 1824 to a family of Misnagdim. His grandfather was actually a student of Reb Chaim Valajner, the main student of the Vilna Gaon, the person who represented the Litvisha world, the Misnagdisha world, in its battle, its confrontation with the world of Hasidim. But the mother of Reb Shmuel was comes from a Hasidisha background. So he had in him both a an ancestor on the Babacher side, on the, on the Hasidish side, and also on the Misnagdish side. In that respect, it reminded me very much of the life of Rav Kook, who also combined in himself lineage of both Hasidus and Misnagdim, and we seem to feel that they inherited the qualities, the positive qualities of both. Rav Shulam Oliver was known as an Eloi from early childhood. The as a young man, he was married to a into a Hasidisha family, but although he was married into a Hasidish family at a young age, he continued learning in Valazhin, which was, of course, the, the yeshiva founded by the height of the Misnagdim, Reb Chaim and he learned there for a number of years. He began first his career as a businessman, and only later became involved in the world of Rabbanus. He was appointed as the Rav of Suvalk. I would assume that this is the city that all Yeshiva University students know because that was the place where Rav David Lifshitz of Yeshiva University was the Rav when he was a young man, the Suvalka Rav. And later he became the Rav, Rav Shmuel Malavar became the Rav of Radum. We really at least I, do not know much about the lumdis of Reb Shmuel Malavar. I do know that in the big set of Mishnayis, I have seen in the back a perush of Reb Shmuel Malavar, chidushim that were printed in the name Reb Shmuel Malavar. He wrote a number of Sheilotu Tshuvot, which show his great erudition, and also shows the respect that he was afforded by the people who asked him these Sheilot. Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, the great Tamit Chacham from Mantua, Switzerland, wrote about Rabbi Shmuel Oliver and emphasized the fact that the world knows of Rabbi Shmuel Oliver because of his Zionistic world. But it's a shame, a tragedy, 
that many of his farm were lost, and today we do not have, at least I don't know of, the legacy of Rabbi Shmuel Oliver in pure Lamdas. But Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, who was acknowledged by all worlds as a great, great Hamid Chacham, praised very highly the erudition of Rabbi Shmuel Oliver and acclaimed him as one of the Gedolim of his generation. In the world of Rabbanus, he was known for his chesed. He had his own personal fortune. According to Genachovsky, he actually won part of his fortune in a lottery. But he gave it all away. He gave it to all types of causes. But he became primarily known, not just originally as a Tamid Chacham, and not just as a person, a Rav, who exuded Chesed, but as the founder of what we would call today political Zionism. He began the organization that we call that was called Chibas, that was called Chovetzion or Chibas Chibas and he showed a great love for Eretz Israel. In terms of his actual undertaking, what he did for Klal Yisrael, one of the greatest things he did is he went around trying to convince people to support Zionut both ideologically practically, and of course, the highest practicality of all is to give money. He tried to speak to various people, including Rav Tzadok HaKohen, who was the chief rabbi of Paris, of France at that time, not to be confused with Rav Tzadok HaKohen, who wrote um, the Pritzadik, but the chief rabbi of France, and an appointment was arranged between him and Baron Edmund Rothschild to just get an appointment with Baron Rothschild was something that was extremely difficult. And since, of course, the wealth of the Rothschild dynasty was known to everyone, the amount of people that came to ask for Tzedakah, to ask for very good causes, was immense. And it was very difficult to get an appointment. And secondly, it was very difficult to convince the Baron to support his cause. Rev... Shmuel Malaver was successful, extremely successful in this respect. He spoke to the Baron about the message of Torah and Eretz Israel. He explained that he personally was not the most eloquent speaker that could speak on the behalf of Torah and Eretz Israel, but he pointed out that Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't the greatest speaker in the world either. The Torah told us that Moshe was kvad peu kvad lashon, he had some sort of difficulty in speech. But nevertheless, the message that Moshe taught was so obvious, was so true, that it could convince people. And in a sense, that proved how important the message is. Perhaps on purpose they sent someone whose language was not so clear, whose eloquence was not so obvious, in order to show that I don't need a salesman. What I do know is to show what the real cause is. And wonder of wonders, the Baron was very much influenced by Rav Shmuel Malaver, and he became known as the Nadiv Hayadua, the person who supported the movements of Eretz Israel, Avi HaYishuv, the father of the of the community of Israel, 
And of course, it's legendary how much Zionism owes to the Rothschild family. I just happened to find out recently that the Balfour Declaration was actually written and sent to one of the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds were, uh, were identified with Zionism and with political Zionism, and it seems that all this can be traced back to the original meeting of Reb Shmuel Malover with Baron Rothschild. Besides traveling around Europe, going to the different communities to try to preach religious Zionism, to explain to people that he's looking for people to work the land, that we're looking to build communities. Besides that, Rabbi Shmuel Malavar undertook a trip to Eretz Israel, where he went to the different Yishuvim that were being begun. And if we'll think of the conditions that existed then, in the late part of the 19th century, we can imagine the difficult life those Chalutzim really had. And Rabbi Shmuel Malavar came in the traditional garb of the old Tamid Chacham. He wore a streimel, he wore a long coat, he had a long beard, and he came to all these chalutzim and encouraged them. This trip that I only read about recently in this book that I mentioned, it seems so reminiscent of the trip that was famous that Rav Kook took in later years. When Rav Kook organized this campaign, Masahit Orerut, when he tried to go around to all the kibbutzim, irrespective of their beliefs, irrespective of who they were, but he went to encourage them in building Eretz Israel, and he praised them, and he wanted to participate with them as much as he possibly could. It seems this is the the, the, the trip of Shmuel Lover was the antecedent of the trip of Rav Kook, of the Masait Orerut that was undertaken by Rav Kook years later. He was, Rav Shmuel Lover, the center of religious Zionism, and as can be imagined, he was the target of both sides. On one side, the ultra-Orthodox felt that he had turned to the Zionist movement and felt that he sort of abandoned what they felt was the authentic Judaism. On the other hand, the people who were just political Zionists, did not want to build religious Zionism, were opposed to his, we would call it today, his Haredi tendencies, when he talked about building a kosher society, a halachic society, and he worked within halachic parameters in order to try to build and encourage even the agriculture of Eretz Israel. Rav Shmuel Malavar was one of the first people that discussed the concept of Shemitah in Eretz Israel, and of course worked on the Hatamichira, which again w- was a forerunner of Rav Kook's position in later years. There was a tremendous conference in Odessa where Rav Shmuel Malavar explained that my purpose is to build religious Zionism, not old-fashioned Jews, new-fashioned Jews. But when he said new-fashioned Jews, it sounded like something new. No, he said, I'm going back to the original style, to the Jews of the Nevi'im, to the Jews of the Maccabim, to Jews who combined Torah and Avoda. And he saw this in Tanakh, and he saw this in the history of Judaism. When Herzl came upon the scene, and here was a very important question. How do the religious Zionists relate to Herzl? On one hand, Herzl was a great a political leader. On the other hand, Herzl certainly was not to be classified as a religious person. So, Reb Shmuel decided to go along with Herzl and build political Zionism, although certainly he differed with him in the areas of religion. 
This, of course, is also reminiscent of Rav Kook, who spoke about Herzl in such positive terms that some people even think he somehow equated Herzl with Mashiach ben Yosef, not Mashiach ben David, but Mashiach ben Yosef is the forerunner of the Mashiach, and the uh, issue of Rav Kook is well known in the Hespeid in Yerusha, in, that he gave in Yerushalayim when he spoke about Herzl. It also reminded me personally, in my father's house in Brooklyn, he had a, a picture of Herzl that he hung on the wall. Because my father was rather eclectic in his understanding of uh, different Torah and Jewish personalities, he had a picture of the former Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe before Rebbe Menachem Mendel, the, the, the Rebbe that was called Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe before. My father had his picture on the wall, the picture of the Friedrich Rebbe, for those people that are familiar with it, there's a very famous picture where he has a very austere look. He looks a little bit almost frightened in the picture. So one time a Lubavitcher Chassid came into my house and he saw that how the picture of, of the Friedrich Rebbe was hanging next to Herzl says that all his life he never understood the, that particular pose of, of Lubavitcher Rebbe. Why did he look so frightened? And he said now he realized it because he realized that someday he'd be hanging in the house next to Herzl and he would look at it in a state of shock. Of course, this uh, question of how a person related to Herzl was a major issue. And Shmuel Malifer decided, in terms of political Zionism, to go with, along with Herzl. At the convention, at the, at the Zionist convention, Rav, Rav Malifer himself could not go because of ill health, but he sent his son to represent him, and he gave along the copy of a speech that he should present at this, at this uh, conference. And it was interesting that when... Uh, Rav Shmuel Malaver passed away, Herzl spoke about him and called him the first political Zionist. The yard site of Rav Shmuel Malaver, according to the books that we have of yard sites of Gedolei Israel, is really this week. Interestingly enough, in the book that I read, this in the article by this fellow, Genachovsky, he has the date of his patira in September which would mean that this week is not actually his yard site. I've used the yard site according to the calendar that I found that uh, we use in the yeshiva of the book of yard sites of Gedolei Yisrael. To summarize the life of Reb Shum Oliver very, very briefly, I would say that he, this was, he was an outstanding Tamad Chacham. If not for some of the small writings that we have somewhat left that survived, we wouldn't know that either. But we have the, wit- the testimony of Rav of Rav of Rav of, um, of the Rav of, of Montreal, Switzerland, of Rav Yaakov Weinberg. We have his testimony that he was indeed a gadol. We know certainly that he was a great political Zionist, the one that Herzl said was the first political Zionist. And we know that we owe his we owe gratitude forever in talking in his convincing people to be Zionist, especially to convince the Baron Rothschild. In terms of his legacy. Reb Shmuel Oliver will be known among the religious Zionist leaders. To the best of my knowledge, the only place that I personally know that is named for Reb Shmuel Oliver is a kibbutz near Chadera, the kibbutz Gan Shmuel. And I find that ironic. In terms of the memory of Reb Shmuel Oliver, the Gon and the Tzaddik, it would have been perhaps more appropriate to have a more religious type of kibbutz, a more religious type of environment named after him. On the other hand, 
I'm sure that Rav Shmuel Malavar would have been proud of Tzuyonut in any form, and he would have encouraged the people of every kibbutz to build Eretz Yisrael, and he would have explained the point that is in their neshama that is involved in Tzuyonut. And he would hope that it's a process where we believe that the beginning of the process will culminate in the days that we'll see all Tzuyonim becoming in, into the world of Rav Shmuel Malavar, the world of Tzionut Datit, religious Zionism. We've placed a tremendous responsibility on our shoulders today. We cannot hide behind our leaders' opinions as a defense. We have to know how to differentiate between the leaders and know who the Moshe and Aaron's are, the Kalev and Yoshua's are, not only by who they are, but what they say. What they say, we have to have the ability to judge and know that they're making sense. And if they're not making sense, perhaps we have to go elsewhere. What a responsibility. The leaders in Parshat Shlach went down and they took the entire generation down with them. That means all of us, as laymen, have responsibility to make the right decisions on our own and not hide behind the tales of our leaders. And with that thought, Shabbat Shalom.